0: and amen. Well, if you would, please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Ruth. Let's begin yet another new sermon series this evening. Word of God open before us. Let's pray together and ask God's blessing. Lord God Almighty, the great God of heaven, from whom and through whom and to whom are all things, we come into your presence tonight, O God, and to ask you that you would draw near to us and speak to us. We need to hear the comfort of Your Word and also the conviction of our sins, and we need a a clearer conception of our Savior. And so, we pray, Lord, that You would open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things in Your law. We offer these prayers, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Ruth, actually, let's pick up a reading in the last verse of the previous book, Judges twenty-one, twenty-five. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife had two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Machran and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Mahran and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughter-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but this is the Word of God, and it endures forever. Why? 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 It's probably the first question we learn to ask as little children. No, you can't watch TV. No, you can't have candy. No, you can't stay up any longer. And the little child's voice rises, why? And that question echoes on from childhood through adulthood, but as we get older, the stakes are a little bit higher, aren't they? We ask the same question, but with a deeper yearning, and often a deeper pain. Why did that happen? Why did that matter so much to me? Why did I get so bent out of shape when she said that to me or He did that to me? Why would God allow this to happen? Why didn't God stop me from doing that stupid thing I just did? Why doesn't God heal me from this disease I have. Why is life so difficult? Why does everybody else seem to have an easier lot in life than I do? Why? And beneath all of those whys, there is a, a theological question. Do we really believe that God is sovereign? Romans eleven thirty six: from Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to Him be the glory forever and ever. From Him, everything that happens on earth, from the greatest thing all the way down to the least thing, a sparrow falling dead um, on the back street of Jerusalem, or a hare evacuating itself from your, fort, from your um, pit and falling to the floor, the, the greatest to the smallest thing is controlled by Um, The hand of God. It's September the 11th. I remember when 9/11 became a a date written in infamy. I was at seminary, and we were studying the Book of Amos with Dr. Ralph Davis, and we'd we'd just passed Amos 4, uh, and and that verse: "Can there be disaster in the city, and the Lord has not done it?" Now we we did that in the previous class. But uh, one of the lads was asking Dr. Davis about that and the relationship between disaster and the providence of God. And as Dr. Davis was answering, the door opened, and another student burst in and said, a plane has just crashed into the, one of the Trade Center towers. And we thought it was a, a Cessna or something like that had crashed in, some sightseeing tourist flying too close to the towers and crashed. And in our mind, we visioned a, a small fire in the corner of one of the buildings, of course. And only later in the class, as we walked out early in the morning, did we see um, the, 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 the towers on fire and seeing pictures of the second plane hitting. And, and only we stood and watched as the was a tower two collapse first, I, I forget, but it was an awesome picture, and it took us all by shock. And I think it's one of those times when we all remember what we were doing and where we were when we heard about 9-11 from Him come all things. But Paul says more. He says, through Him. It's not just that God orders all things by decree, setting up the world, as it were, to run like a clockwork train, but His fingerprints are over every detail. Every event of history happens either by His active commission, He causes it to happen, or His permission. But our confession of faith puts it so beautifully that even when God permits evil in this world, it's not by a bare permission. It's not that God closes His eyes and kind of turns around and says, okay, I'm going to close my eyes, and you can do your thing, and I'll just pretend I'm not watching. No, even when He permits evil, His hands are all over the situation so that what is done serves His holy ends, yet in such a way that sin belongs only to the creature. For God, who is most holy, wise, and perfect, cannot be the author or the approver of sin. But He does make use of sin, as Luther says in uh, his book, The Bondage of the Will, which the men are studying together uh, at our dead theologian society. And Luther describes it like a rider riding a mad horse and controlling that horse. The horse might want to go to the left, but the rider with the bit makes the horse go in its direction. And so, in Jerusalem, you see the wicked putting Christ to death, and famously, was put, I think, by Octavius Winslow, the, the, Purit, the Baptist pastor who preached so much for um, Charles Spurgeon. Um, They're close friends, but he made this beautiful comment that Who put Christ on the cross? Um, well, was it Judas? Yes, he put him there because he loved money. And was it the Jews? Yes, he, they put him there because they, they were jealous. And was it the Romans? Yes, they put him there because they were frightened and uh, Pilate was frightened and gave in to the mob, but it was also the Father who put Him on the cross. Um, and the, the, the Greek word paradidomai, which means to betray, to hand over, is used of Judas's actions, it's used of, her, of, of, of the Jews, it's used of Pilate, and it's used of the Father. The Father handed over His Son because of love. All those actors at work at the same time in the same moment But God sovereignly overseeing, wrapping it all round about with His overarching providence, of course, which is His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. But it's one thing to know that in your head, it's quite another to know that in your heart. Remember Ralph Davis again saying in class one time, "Boys, you know it's one thing to say your catechism; it's another thing to say your catechism." It's one thing to say, as a little boy, "The souls of of believers at, at their death um, do immediately pass into glory, while their bodies rest in their grave until the resurrection." It's one thing to say that, as a little boy, saying his catechism before. Um, uh, the elders, it's quite another when you come and stand over the grave of a father or a mother or a husband or a wife or a child. The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory while their bodies do rest in their grave until the resurrection. You can say your catechism and you can say your catechism. Do I note in my head Do I feel it in my heart? Paul Tripp puts it well. Does my practical theology line up with my confessional theology? Let me turn Sarah off before she interrupts another sermon. And the answer to that question will really determine how well, how easily you make it through your life. Will you know that poise, that peace, that deep contentment, that deep joy We spoke about this morning in Philippians 4, as you face conflict and as you face a battle for contentment and as you beat off the clawing fear and anxiety that claws at the fabric of your soul, and one of the chief ways, of course, that we are able to rise above those fears and rise above those anxieties is to trust and rest in the arms of God's all-holding providence. God is the Pantocrator, the the all-holding one. It's the Greek word for Almighty God. He's the panto krator, panto all-krator grasping. He holds all things in His hands. And that's precisely the problem that meets us in the book of Ruth in these opening chapters. This man, Elimelech, nothing seems to be going right. The wheels are coming off this man's life. And it's not so much that his, his practical theology doesn't measure up with his confessional theology. His life doesn't measure up to his name. His name, of course, is Elimelech, which means, My God, Eli. Remember, Jesus, Eli, Eli, Lamas, Eli, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eli is my God. Melech is king. My God is king. Uh, well, the very problem with this man's life is that there doesn't seem to be any king around. He's, he's, he's living in the days of the judges, more about that in a second, but there was no king in Israel in those days. And yet his name tells him there's a God in heaven, but his life isn't telling him that. That's the problem. And all the names in these, in these, these opening verses are jarringly contradictory. He lives in Bethlehem, which means the house of bread, but there's a famine. There's no bread in the house of bread. And his two sons, Machlin and Killian. Machlin means weakness, and Killian means pining. You might call the two boys wheezy and skinny. Strange names to give your children. But his boys aren't thriving. And his wife's name is Naomi, which means pleasant. But we'll see in this chapter, she's nothing but bitterness to hold on to. And before it gets worse, it gets even worse. No pleasantness to enjoy, only bitterness to lament and to endure. And it's not just his life in Bethlehem that's jarringly inconsistent, but the land he is inhabiting is coming apart at the seams. We're told in the first verse it's the time when the judges ruled. This is about 1050 B.C. And if you remember the book of Judges, the message of that book, there's positivity there, but there's a deep current of negativity. It makes a devastating statement of the people of Israel. If you remember, Joshua was about taking the land, Um, but Judges tells the story of the much more difficult problem of actually possessing the land and holding onto it. And as you read the book of Judges, you kind of come face to face with this this twin message of the faithlessness of Israel over and against the faithfulness of God. But the faithlessness shines very brightly or darkly, you might say, in the book. The book of Judges tells the story of the downward, spiraling nature of sin tends to get worse. You never stand still in your spiritual life. You're either growing and progressing up or your slip sliding away, and Israel are slip sliding away. And Ralph Davis summarises the book of Judges under three um, headings. If you turn to Judges at the very beginning, just to walk you through it. The first three chapters, at least down to verse six of chapter three, tell the story of the failure of a second generation there arose a generation, we're told, who did not know the Lord. There's generational ignorance as one generation moves into the next. And then from chapter 3, verse 6, all the way through to the end of the Samson narrative, you see the story of the salvation of a long-suffering God. That's from chapter 3, verse 7 to 16, verse 31. And these twelve judges they too tell the story of a downward spiral. You think of the five most prominent judges. You've got a reluctant farmer, Gideon. You've got a prophetess, Deborah, and she's a hero, but she tells the story of the weakness of men, because the men won't lead that she has to stand forward to lead. You have the left-handed assassin, Ehud, at the start, the bastard bandit, Jephthah, who was um, the son of an unmarried union. Then you've got the sex-addicted Nazarite, Samson, to um, round off the cycles. And as you walk through the Judges, there's this this cycle of Israel sinning. God hands them over to judgment, and they are under the oppressive hand, the jackboot of some foreign Gentile um, force, one of which was the Moabites, of course, and the Philistines. And they're squashed, Um, and then they get to a point when they can bear no more, and they cry out in misery but if you read the text closely, they're not crying out to God. They're just crying out in pain. And there's no record of repentance in the cycle. They just go from sin to judgment to misery. And they cry out, and God comes and rescues them with the judge. But there's never any repentance or real prayer. And as you progress through the, the stories of the judges, you have Squeaky Cling of Neil at the end and it progresses through to Samson as the final judge. Now, in Sunday school, we hear about Samson the hero, and of course, there's much grace in Samson's life. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible is, and the hair on Samson's head began to grow again. It's a wonderful picture of God's grace and God's mercy. And perhaps we'll look at it in more detail in another sermon series at another time. But when you look at Samson, he breaks all of his Nazarite Boys, The Nazarite was not to touch a dead body, not even his mother or father, and yet he scoops honey from the corpse of a lion. He was to avoid contact with pagans and Gentiles, and he ends up marrying a Philistine. He's to avoid wine, but he gets drunk with the Philistines at a drinking party, and he's not to cut his hair. And, of course, his last mistake, he allows Delilah to do that very thing. And as you walk through these judges from Othniel to Samson, the, the times of judgment gets, get longer and longer and longer, and the times of deliverance get shorter and shorter and shorter. So, in the first narrative, you have eight years of judgment and then forty years of rest after Othniel. By the time you get to Samson, they are forty years of judgment and only twenty years of rest but there's a downward spiral. So, you've got the failure of a second generation to pass on the knowledge of God. You've got the salvation of a long-suffering God with these people who just won't repent or turn to Him. And the end of the book, you have this, the confusion of a depraved people. If you turn to the end of Judges in Judges 17, um, you see the story of a people unraveling in chaos, a spiritual apostasy there in chapter 17. just read the first few verses. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah, who was like Yahweh. And he said to his mother, "'The eleven hundred pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it.' And his mother said, "'Blessed be my son by the Lord.' And he restored the eleven hundred pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said I dedicate the silver to the Lord from the hand for my son from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image Now therefore I will restore it to you So when he restored the money to his mother his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image and it was in the house of Micah and the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's spiritual apostasy. Then you have chapter 18, sexual immorality. When you read this story, you remember it's a story which really paints the rather lurid picture of Sodom in Israel, right? You have this Levite who takes a concubine, which is basically an Old Testament friend with benefits, but she's not really his wife. And she runs away from him, and he chases after her. He finally catches up with her uh, in Bethlehem. He takes her back home. It's too long a journey to make in one day. He almost stays in Jebus or Jerusalem. It, It wasn't a Jewish city yet. It was still a pagan city. Um, but he decides against it because, you know, you don't want to stay with pagans. It might not be very safe. So, he travels on and gets to Gibeah. And when he gets to Gibeah, if you read the story, it's basically an Old Testament retelling of the story of Lot. He's in Gibeah. He stays with this man. The men of Gibeah surround the house. They're hungry for sex. Uh, and the, before it's all said and done, the the, the Levite gives his concubine into the hands of these men, and they rape her all night long. And in the morning, he gets up, has his breakfast, walks out, sees her lying at the doorstep of the house, kicks her, and says, get up, we're going home. But she's dead. It's Sodom in Israel. It's a graphic picture of a country on spiritual apostasy and sexual immorality and then social hostility. Before it's all said and done, you see the society break down into civil war as uh, the tribes fight, and the tribe of Benjamin is almost completely wiped out. These are the days uh, of Elimelech. A. N. D. Campbell, a Scottish Presbyterian minister, said this, "'It was an age of tremendous independence from God.' manifesting a spirit of self-rule and of self-confidence. God said one thing, but the people did another. What was written in God's law was of little consequence. God laid down standards of absolute morality and ethics, but that was of little import. Every man claimed his right to live as he chose. Men did what they wanted, and God was left out. What God said was of secondary importance and was almost irrelevant and peripheral. Indy Campbell. Now, if you knew anything about the Scottish church, Indy Campbell was one of the foremost preachers. He was in one of the Scottish Isles. I think he was in the Isle of Skye, or Lewis, one of the two islands. There was a great revival there years and years ago. And Indy Campbell was one of those men that you'd listen to, and he just spoke with great, there was just a real earnest holiness about him or so it seemed. And a few years ago, I heard the sudden news that he died, and it was a, a terrible shock. And then it all came out that he'd been having one adulterous affair after another with ladies in his congregation and in the community, and a husband confronted him at the door when it became evident to him that he'd been having an affair with his wife, and A&D went home and killed himself. It was one of the most shocking things I ever—I mean, you hear some ministers, and you think, this is not right about this man. Maybe there's an arrogance and a pride about him, and you think, ah. and then he falls, and you go, why? And he wasn't really real. But A.N.D. Campbell had, had that he smelled of holiness. He seemed like a really earnest, godly minister. He's a great preacher and a great writer, and yet all the while he was living a double life. And he's saying in that quote, here are people, God said one thing, and the people did another And he can say that about the people in the days of Judges, and didn't know he was also, or maybe he did know, that he was also describing himself. Just how far even the best of men can fall away from the living God. And the lesson of the book of Judges is that when you fall away from God, really, there's nothing to stop you from falling as far as you can possibly fall. Um, James Montgomery Boyce said. No people can ever rise higher than their idea of God. And conversely, the loss of God's high and awesome character always in the the minds of God's people always involves a loss of a people's moral values and even what we commonly call humanity. We are startled by the disregard for human life that has overtaken large segments of the Western world. But what do we expect when countries like ours openly turn their back upon God? We deplore the breakdown of moral standards, but what do we expect when we have focused our worship services on ourselves and our own often trivial needs rather than on God? Our view of God affects what we are, and it affects how we live. And so, Elimelech is a man like us, He knows something about God. His name proclaims it to him, my God is King. And yet his experiences don't seem to measure up to his theology. And here's a man wrestling with what on earth is he to do. I wonder about you this evening. You have your theology. You go to a Reformed Presbyterian church. You dot your theological I's. You cross your theological T's. But are you struggling to to, to connect what you know about God in your head to what you feel about Him in your heart, and what you see that He seems to be doing or not doing in the world that surrounds you? That's the problem a faced, and it's the problem I think we're all facing this evening. So, what's a limelight to do? Back to Ruth 1. Well, he cuts his losses and runs. He sets out in search of a fresh start and a new beginning in the land of Moab. It's a a rational choice. There's no food in Bethlehem, and there is food in Moab. And so he does what any self-respecting pragmatist would do. He sells up and he moves out. He forsakes Israel. Now, that's in itself significant as he forsakes Israel and embraces Moab for his home. Sinclair Ferguson says, this family are forsaking the only place on earth God has specifically given to His people, the place in which He has promised to bless them and provide for all their needs. In the Old Covenant, there were particular geographical spaces and times that God had designated as holy These were the specific places where God promised to meet with His people. Eventually, they formed a series of concentric circles. The promised land, the city of Jerusalem, and at the center, the temple, and in the middle of the temple, the Holy of Holies. The promised land was the one place on earth where whatever happened, you could be safe, sheltering under the shadow of the Almighty. But the Word of God and the land of God no longer pleases this family, and they seek to take the provision of God's promises apart from the repentance God requires. They're they're walking away from God's promise and God's presence, and they are providing for themselves, you might say. And they're going to Moab. That's also significant. Remember Moab, um, a place that began with incest? Lot and his daughter, his two daughters, and it was the Moabite king who wanted to curse Israel through Balak, the false prophet, you remember. And it was the sexually immoral woman who became a stumbling block to Israel. You remember um, Balak couldn't um, uh, curse the people of God. And uh, every time he opened his mouth to curse them, he ended up blessing them. Uh, Balaam, sorry. And uh, the king says to Balaam, what are you doing? This is crazy. You're, not, you're supposed to be cursing these people, and Balaam can't. He said, what God says to me, I must speak. Even though he's a false prophet, he ends up speaking truth about God's people. He blesses them. But Balaam figures out quickly that while he cannot curse Israel, he can get Israel to curse themselves. And so he brings in these hot um, Moabite women into the camp. And the people of Israel stumble and commit deeds of sexual immorality with them, and they worship Baal of Peor, Baal of Peor, the lord of the opening. And it's not describing the opening into some pagan temple. Baal was the god of sex, and Baal of Peor, the lord of the opening, is like calling him the lord of the vagina. That's what he's saying. And Israel are, are, are taken um, and led astray through these Moabite women into tremendous sexual immorality. And, of course, it was the Moabites who oppressed Israel uh, during the reign of Eglon, the uh, rather well-upholstered man that Echid killed with the, with the sword. Um, and also, through the book of Deuteronomy, there was this, there's this curse. You'll see it in, in Deuteronomy 23, verse 3 to verse 6. That if, if that, that, that um, a child born of a Moabite union was not allowed into the assembly of the Lord for ten generations, it's four hundred years. And you put all that together, and Moab is no place to raise a godly family. But Elimelech, practical man, leaves Bethlehem and goes to Moab. He forsakes the people of God and the presence of God and the promises of God and goes out to make a living for himself. Now, you and I can do that, of course, as well, when God's people uh, forsake the church. What what was said of Israel is said of this place. This place, this building isn't a church. Um, In Scotland, they say, the kirk has gone in. Sunday mornings, people gather outside and they're chatting Uh, outside the church, and then when the bell tolls or the, the time for worship begins, people enter the church. But they don't go into the church, like I just said. The Scots say, no, the kirk has gone in. They've gone into the building. It's the people who are the church, not the building. And that's what we heard this morning in Philippians 1, that the healthy child of God defines himself by the gospel. He defines himself by Christ, And because he defines himself by the gospel, he finds himself drawn to those who do likewise, and thus the koinonia, the sharing, the fellowship, the partnership that always defines the children of God. And yet how many um, times in my ministry have I seen people either forsake the church— and be lackadaisical about being a member of the church and coming under the discipline of the church, or forsaking, withdrawing their letter to avoid the the shepherding of the church. Someone's in sin, and the session are reaching out to them, pleading with them to come and speak. And some time ago here, that happened in this congregation, and the the person in particular said, as we called them before the session, they said, I have no interest in having that conversation. And Kyle, ever the sharp-thinking pastor, said to the man, no, I think you said you were willing to have that conversation when you took vows up here, that you would submit to the pastoral shepherding and discipline of the elders. But the person left anyway, withdrew their membership, or even in a smaller sense, when, you, when an opportunity arises for a, a better job and a bigger salary and more money in a different city, how many Christians go to think, oh, this must be God's will because there's more bigger and better over there? But they don't ask the question, what kinds of churches are there in that city? And it could be a spiritual wasteland, but they go there with their family because there's more money there and a better job there. Now, there's always that balance You know, he does not provide for his family, Paul says, is worse than an unbeliever. There's a tremendous need to provide for our family, but we must beware in making those decisions without thinking also, what kind of church is there? Am I forsaking a place where the Word of God is preached with some measure of power and and the presence of God among the people of God? Uh, And am I taking my family to a place where there's a famine not for bread, but for hearing the Word of God? that is exactly what Elimelech did. He chose bread over the Bible and forgot the basic lesson of the Pentateuch, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Well, ideas have consequences, and as Elimelech goes out and away, everything goes from bad to worse. In five verses, you have three funerals. Now, it covers a ten-year period, but these five verses record one tragedy after another. But Elimelech, the husband of Nomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Madeline and Killian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Just feel the emptiness of that phrase. Here she is living in a pagan land, and she's left without her husband. And without her two sons. We know what she was thinking. We'll look at this next week. But she says, No longer call me Naomi. When she goes back to Bethlehem, remember they look at her and they say, That's Naomi. And don't, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasantness. Call me Mara, which means bitterness. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went out full. And I came back. I returned. Empty. So the question then is. Elimelech, where is God? Well, he's there, of course, behind the scenes. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, there are two books named after a woman, Ruth and Esther. And they couldn't be more different, and yet they couldn't be more the same. They're different. Esther was a queen, and Ruth was a lowly peasant girl. Esther was a Jew who married a Gentile, and Ruth was a Gentile who married a Jew. The book of Esther opens with a feast. The book of Ruth opens with a famine. And the book of Esther comes to a close with the hanging of an enemy, Haman, wicked Haman. And the book of Ruth comes to a close with the birth of a little baby, a child. But they're both the same books, because behind the scenes, of course, God is at work, at times painfully, at times quietly, At times, invisibly, remember in the book of Esther, the name of God is not mentioned once. The Jews used to wrestle, do we put this book in Scripture or not? Then how do we explain the Feast of Purim? So, they put it in Scripture, but but it's it's a brilliant piece of of rhetoric because the absence of God's name serves to highlight the presence of God's providence behind the scenes, weaving the whole story together. And so, God is there at work painfully and quietly but always purposefully, always purposefully. What's he doing? Well, as we'll see as we read through this book, the first thing he's doing is he's always working to bring his people home. Um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine times in Ruth chapter 1, you have the word return. It's the word shove, S-H-U-V in Hebrew. Um, It's there in verse 6, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. It's a very important word. It's also a word that's used to mean repent or restore. It's used in Psalm… we just sang Psalm 23, um, He restores my soul. Literally, He shoves my soul in Hebrew. (laughs) He shoves my soul, which means He causes my soul to repent. Or in English, He shoves me back onto the right path when I'm stupid enough to leave it in the first place. And so, as we see this story develop, we'll, t- we'll see the story of God working behind the scenes to bring His people home. It's interesting not to ruin next week's sermon, but here it is anyway. Um, the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went out full. He has brought me back empty." Now, the term Almighty El Shaddai isn't just describing the raw power of God, as if, you know, um, God can do whatever He wants. That's not the idea. No, it's the power of God engaged to bless His people. And in a brilliant act of storytelling, the the writer of Ruth is, 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 is letting Naomi speak better than she knows. I went out full, and your mighty has brought me back empty. Ah, all she can see and all she can feel is the emptiness. But the writer is highlighting the shove word. He's also brought you back, hasn't he? And he had to empty you to do it, but he's brought you back. And you aren't quite as empty as you might think. Because look behind you, love. There's a little girl walking behind you, a young lass, a Moabite to be sure, but her name is Ruth. And God has got some marvelous things in store for her and for you because of His remarkable providence. And so, the, the great lesson of the book of Ruth is that God is always there behind the scenes, quietly, invisibly, working and plotting His sovereign will. And, and we need to be careful. That doctrine of providence should not encourage you before you sin to sin, oh, I'm going to marry a pagan because God can do anything. No, that's bad theology. But when you do mess it all up right and royally, and you think, what have I done? The hand of providence comes and lifts up our chin and says, what you've done has been pretty bad, but don't forget what I am doing behind the scenes. You, O Lord, or remember in in Psalm 3, um, which is a psalm David wrote on the back of a a handkerchief as he's rushing out of Jerusalem when his son Absalom comes to Jerusalem, right? He knows that um, this is the direct disciplinary retribution of God. He took Bathsheba and killed Uriah, and now God is raising up a sword from His own household. Remember, as as he leaves Jerusalem, he says, O Lord, and the word many occurs again and again. Lord, how many are my adversaries. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying, to my soul, there is no deliverance for him and God. That's a word that struck David right into his soul. There is no deliverance for you and God. I don't know about you, but if I was David, I'd be rather inclined to believe that word, because he knows this is the hand of God as Absalom comes in and lies with his wives on the roof of the palace. And Hethethel, the wisest of all the counselors, has gone over to to, um, uh, David's side, or sorry, over to Absalom's side. And it seems as if everything's fallen apart. He's lost his kingdom. He's lost his throne. He's lost his family. And he's got no one to blame but himself. And the crowds are saying to him, uh, and Shimei is wagging his finger at him as he wa- leaves the city, there is no deliverance for you and God. Remember the next verse, though. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the one who lifts up my head. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. Again, David spoke better than he knew. Remember, he he went to sleep that night, and Absalom has a council for war, and Hithophel is there, and he's talking with David, or sorry, with Absalom, and um, Absalom says, What am I to do? And um, Hithophel says, Go now, strike David right now. He's disorientated, he's panicking. Attack his camp now. Send out your navy seals. Take him and kill him. And it's it's the right thing to do. But David has a friend in the court. He gives alternative advice. He says no. He's trying, he's trying to save David. He's kind of like, there's a spy, right? And he says no. Don't do that, um, Absalom. And Absalom goes, why not? He's scrambling, thinking, help, because that was really good advice. Uh, I know, because David's probably not staying in his camp. And if you send out your Navy SEALs to attack him, you'll not find him. You might kill some of his men, but you won't kill David. And the news will spread that your first attack against David failed. and that'll be bad for morale. Wait until you gather all of your troops, then attack. And Absalom's got the good advice of Hithophel that would have worked, and the the bad advice from David's friend, which was stupid, but safe. And, And unbelief can never take the risk of faith. And so rather than taking the risk, Absalom plays it safe, and while David is sleeping that night, his life is spared. Don't think David knew that when he wrote those words. I lie down and sleep. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. But behind the scenes, God was at work, even for David who had messed it all up right and royally. Again, Ferguson says so beautifully, what is the story of Ruth about? It's about turning back to God. It's about returning to His grace. Indeed, this is one of the greatest and perhaps the most detailed accounts in the Old Testament of how God sovereignly works to bring someone to faith, which, of course, is Ruth. And so behind the scenes, we see God at work. We see God at work in His providence through the famine. Famines in the Old Testament were never a sign of God's blessing. They were one of the the promised covenantal curses. So, if, if If Elimelech had only read his Bible and the book of Deuteronomy in particular, he would have put the dots together. God's people have turned away from God, and so for a time, God has turned away from His people. And part of the sign of that turning away from God is removing food to make people hungry enough to look up. Providence. We see the providence also in the fatalities. Um, God has been at work Here's Elimelech running from God, and as he does, he just runs further and further and deeper and deeper into the darkness, and there's one death after another. You can't find life outside of God. Nobody ever has, and nobody ever will, and all Elimelech finds is death, but again, standing over those stories is the word of Job. The Lord gives, and the Lord is taken away. God is the one who took Elimelech's life. God is the one who took Mahlin and Kilian's life. God is the one who evacuated this family of of the life of these men. But, of course, Naomi can't see it because her eyes are blind. It doesn't change the fact that God is the one doing it. And then, lastly, of course, we see the providence of God even through their folly. Helimelech acts in unbelief. He leaves the land, goes to Moab, and he he dies, his sons die. But before they die, one of them marries a pagan girl called Ruth. And who would ever have thought, if they'd never gone to Moab, the boys would never have married these two girls. If they'd never married Ruth, Ruth would never have come back with um, Naomi to Bethlehem. She'd never come back to, with Naomi to Bethlehem. She would never have met Boaz. And she had never met Boaz you and I would never have had the opportunity of meeting Jesus. It's an amazing story of how God takes even the worst things we do, the stupidest things we do, the wickedest things we do, as a wonderful way of wrapping them up in His goodness and bringing us home despite them and through them. And we look back one day and say with the the words of faith, Blessed be God, from Him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory both now and to the days of eternity. And he has worked all things together for my good. Aren't good in themselves, my sins, my mistakes. Oh, he's taken them. Now, some of you here in this room tonight, and you look back over your life, and what jumps out large at you, and you think back over your life, are the mistakes you made. And you think, how could I have been so stupid? How could I have been so sinful? How could I have been so wicked? And God says, not that you should forget your folly or forget your sins, but don't forget my providence. Behind it all, beneath it all, are the the gods the sweet, sovereign hand of God. God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, He treasures up His bright designs and works His sovereign will. Never forget that, Christian. You might look at your life and think your life's destitute. Maybe you're disappointed maybe you think, oh, my life is a story of one disaster after another. And the beautiful thing about our God is He doesn't just give you a catechism question. Now, God could teach you the book of Ruth in one question. What are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. Simple. Much much briefer, saves much parchment. Take it, memorize it, and get on with it. But God doesn't do that. He gives you a story of a man and his pain, and a man and a family, and a man in confusion, and a man in darkness, and a man who messes it all up, and yet God wraps it up in his providence and brings them home. Why does God tell you a story? He tells you stories in the Bible because you're living a story in your own life. And so very often we struggle to find God in our stories. And so God takes the stories of men like David and Solomon and Elimelech, and Joseph, and Mary, and weaves them all together in His sovereign providence and shows Himself walking, moving, and working, at times quietly, sometimes even invisibly, but always purposefully, keeping His promises and bringing His people home. So, you can say, okay, He was that way for them. If we see God working in their lives, God says, as I was with them, I will be with you. As I worked for Elimelech, I will work for you. As I brought Naomi home, despite all of her fears and all of her confusion, and even her almost misuse of my name, as if I would use my power to curse her, when in reality I was using my almighty power to bless her. And in my goodness and mercy, I brought her safely all the way home. It's really Psalm 23 in the story. When I'm hungry, he feeds me. He makes me lie down by green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. When I'm hungry, he feeds me. When I'm lost, he finds me. He restores my soul and guides me in the pathways of his righteousness For his namesake. When I'm scared, he's with me. When I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And when I come to die, he brings me all the way home. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so the the author of the book of Ruth, whoever it is, is saying, whispering in Naomi's ear, look over your shoulder. It's more than Ruth following you back to Bethlehem. The goodness and mercy of God are following you too. It's why you're on the road, and the story's not finished yet. And so whatever's going on in your life this evening, wherever you're full of disappointment and discouragement, where the burdens are too great, open your eyes somewhere in in behind it all, Christian, God is there. Your Father is there. He who loved you so much that He did not spare His own Son will not abandon you in the darkness. He's there always, round about and underneath are the everlasting arms. Let's pray together and ask God's blessing. Father in heaven, Lord, there are many dear brothers and sisters here this evening, some not here from our congregation, who are greatly burdened and distressed. And we pray that the sweet, delightful story of your providence in the life of Naomi and Ruth and Elimelech and Machael and Killian, and how you made a name for them through the Lord Jesus Christ, you have never changed. You're the same yesterday and today and forever and as you, was with, as you were with them, you will be with us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe and close the gap between our confessional theology, what we know in our heads, and the practical theology that we feel in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.